you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It's great to, stay, great to be back. Our last show was right before Christmas, um, and lots of things have happened since then, and you've been to Hawaii, and, and Hawaii. I haven't. No, no, not Hawaii. Where'd you go? Germany. Germany. Oh, Germany. Well, that's even worse then. Uh, I thought you were in Hawaii. Uh, you probably freezing your noogies off over in Germany. It was. We went to Germany, Belgium, and France. Oh, so you went to Bruges, did you not? Yeah, yeah. And I oh, loved it. it you bring me any chocolate back? You forgot, yeah, didn't you? I might have. But anyway, um, it was absolutely gorgeous. But you hit it on the head. <laughs> it was cold, in it? We never got out of the 20s. You know, when and, I, uh, I went to Germany once in, uh, when I was a young married guy uh, in November, and I went to my grandfather and my grandmother's hometown in northern Germany. As soon as I got there, I knew why they left. <laughs> it was so freaking cold. <laughs> Too um, cold. Man, it was just cold, cold, cold. Um, well, it's great to have you back. Um, and uh, I do hope you enjoy the food. I'm sure it was great. And the, the weather might have been chilly, but it's probably great to see your son over there. I hope he's doing well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it was quite interesting. Um, it, and Paris was quite interesting as well. Was it really? I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I kept waiting for the super wow factor. So I've got the same impression of Paris. I'm and not, I never got it. No, uh, I, I do love the museum. My favorite part of, of Paris museum, was sure. museum Musée d'Orsay. Yeah. Not the Louvre, but the Musée d'Orsay to me was my favorite place to go. Um, but other than that, it was like okay. Yeah, and and I. I commented many times, too, about uh, as we drove from uh, uh, Kaiserslautern, mm -hmm. where my son is stationed and stuff, and we drove to into France and then, and then on into Paris, was that I could have been in Montana. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's... I, yeah, it's but a, the small a four-lane highway, and it's... Right, but if you get off the four-lane highway and you go through the small towns, that's actually my, the charming part of France. The freeways are freeways. They're the yeah. freeways anywhere in the world. It's like I was in Chile in November. It's okay. It's like freeways in America. It's just it's kind of the same everywhere. It looks looks the same. Um, but yeah, it's I guess if you're just going to stay on the freeways and go to big town and big town, it's just not going to feel it. But Bruges was, I'm sure, just delightful. Oh, it's just very beautiful, very beautiful. delightful little and town. We had a, a wonderful um, time. A wonderful. You know, now here's another interesting thing I found. We stayed in a historic hotel mm -hmm. in in. Paris, mm -hmm. but in Bruges we stayed in in uh, it. It was an old hotel, but had been totally modernized, mm -hmm. and and it was like staying any place in the United States. They had they had the I guess facilities maybe is as good a word as any mm -hmm. of, of any you know three star four star hotel in in the states, mm -hmm. and and it was and they had lighting. Yeah, they had lights on. And you could see. Oh, really? Whereas in lots of France and in, in oh, yeah, other areas, you know, turn the lights on, you know. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, the three watt bulb yeah, and then the yeah. chandelier. But, I know, uh, we were in, we were in Prague nice. in early December. Um, it was an old palace that had been restored by Marriott, and it was beautiful. And uh, But it was certainly like saying any, any Marriott in the whole wide world. Uh, but, David, there's been some big immigration news since you've been gone. No, I, I want to congratulate you. Well, I got the news. Much. We were very excited to receive the uh, uh, judge's decision in the uh, uh, Rivera-Hernandez uh, versus the Board of Regents lawsuit. 
Uh, as many of our listeners know, uh, our journey began over four years ago uh, when we uh, wrote a blog, when I wrote a blog, uh, shortly after DACA was issued by the president and shortly after uh, the uh, then Attorney General, uh, your favorite prior, uh, the head of Homeland Security, uh, Aunt Janet uh, Napolitano, uh, issued the first uh, FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, in which it said that DACA students would not accrue unlawful presence and therefore they would have lawful presence in the United States. I wrote a blog back then, David, on my blog at musingsonimmigration.blogspot.com where I talked about the Board of Regents policy, which at the time said that no one without lawful presence can obtain in-state tuition. And prior to the issuance of DACA, creation of DACA, uh, all of these undocumented students were barred from getting in-state tuition because of that policy. They did not have lawful presence. Well, lo and behold, DACA came along and said these kids had lawful presence. So I wrote a blog. Hopefully, David, I guess I was naive. I, I, I mean, perhaps thought that the Board of Regents wanted kids to go to school and wanted to uh, bring as many kids possible into the university system. Clearly, I was mistaken about that. They're obviously more interested in kowtowing to politics than anything else uh, because they, they, when that memo was presented to them by the students, they just blew it off and said, no, nah, we don't think it's lawful presence. And, and really, four years later, David, they have never explained how their definition of lawful presence exists or where it comes from or how they justify it when it's the federal government that defines lawful presence for purposes of immigration. And that's what these guys are, lawfully present. So ultimately, uh, the following late spring, early summer, I think it was June of 2013, uh, the group of Goya, the Georgia Undocumented Youth Alliance, who had been going to every Board of Regents meeting trying to convince the regents that they had lawful presence, uh, and uh, they were unsuccessful. So they came to me and they asked, what can we do? I said, well, we're going to have to sue them. And I told them there was three ways that we could bring suit against the state, the Board of Regents. One, the simplest and the easiest and the most direct way was what's called a declaratory judgment action. A declaratory judgment action, for those of my listeners who aren't lawyers, is really kind of simple. It's basically saying go to a, a state court judge or a federal court judge, depending on your state or federal law, and say, Judge, we want you to look at the law and declare what the law says, a declaratory judgment, and then order the offending government agency to obey the law. There's declaratory judgment. So we, the second option was to file a mandamus action. Now, mandamus actions are a little bit different in the state of Georgia because you have to sue the individual members of the Board of Regents rather than just a declaratory judgment action against the entity, the Board of Regents. And that's a little bit harder, you know, not nearly as sure about winning that. And then the last, David, was to go to federal court on a civil rights violation, which I, which I viewed always as the weakest link in the chain. Um, so we decided to go ahead, and in, in August of 2013, we filed in uh, DeKalb County Superior Court, because that's where one of the main colleges was, perimeter and where our, plain, our name plaintiff was at the time, uh, uh, Juan Olvera, to uh, sue them under the Declaratory Judgment Act in Georgia. And at the time, the Declaratory Judgment Act allowed us to sue the Board of Regents in the state court. Uh, by October, it became clear that we had to move the case over to Fulton County, and the case was ultimately moved to Fulton County uh, in the uh, early part of 2014. But David, here's the key. In, in February of 2014, unbeknownst, to, frankly, to me, 
the U.S. the Georgia Supreme Court ruled uh, in a wetlands case that the Declaratory Judgment Act. Uh, had a very limited application against state agencies, and in fact, sovereign immunity may block some instances of declaratory judgments. Now, ultimately, I became aware of that case as we filed a motion for summary judgment in Fulton County in the uh, in the summer of 2014. Uh, had oral arguments on this issue, and by the by the winter of 2014, by late fall of 2014, the uh, state court judge, Judge Goger, ruled that that case. Uh, and thus that, that, uh, line of thinking, that sovereign, sovereign immunity under the new interpretation by the Georgia Supreme Court post our filing of the case barred his adjudication of the case. Now here's what's interesting. In Judge Goger's decision, he said, if I could rule on the case, he basically found that we were probably right, that there was lawful presence and that the Board of Rings should change their policy. But he said, look, I don't have authority to do this. So we then took – I thought he was wrong. And so we took Judge Goger's decision to the Court of Appeals. Uh, and in the Court of Appeals, uh, in uh, uh, late 2014 to early 2015, ruled that we didn't – that sovereign immunity barred our lawsuit. Now, I will tell you, David, as someone who went to law school 30 years ago, that may have been the last time that I read about sovereign immunity. It's just not something that comes up every day in an immigration lawyer's practice. So we took the case to the Supreme Court, and the argument was simple. Look, if you're barring us from sovereign immunity, by sovereign immunity, what you're saying basically is the state agency can write a rule. They can enforce that rule any way they want to, even contrary to the plain meaning of the words they're using, and no citizen, no constituent, no one affected can do anything about that. That was my argument. I thought that was a pretty compelling argument, David. Do you, do you agree? I mean, you agree. It's a pretty compelling argument. You don't want state agencies going out willy-nilly making rules and then enforcing them contrary to their plain meaning, do you? Of course you don't. Uh, he's nodding his head uh, uh, silently in the background. Uh, so we go to the Georgia Supreme Court, and David, shockingly, we lost in uh, February of 2016, uh, in which the Supreme Court said, no. Sovereign immunity bars every action for declaratory judgment. But David, in a footnote in that decision, the author of that decision said, however, perhaps there may be a suit under the mandamus statute uh, of state law against the individual members of the Board of Rangers. And in fact, at oral argument, I was asked that exact question by Judge Mamias. Why didn't you file a lawsuit uh, under under mandamus, and my my answer then was plain because it's not as strong as a lawsuit under declaratory judgment. Uh, it's just easier to do it this way. So now we were faced with the choice, David. We could just give up and say, "I'm sorry, kids, you don't get in-state tuition. Just suck it up." But David, these kids don't give up. They never give up. They just keep fighting, and I, there's no way I could turn my backs on these kids. So. Uh, in April, we filed another lawsuit in, in Superior Court in Fulton County under the state mandamus statute. Now, what is a mandamus? For those of you who are not lawyers out there, I've already explained declaratory judgment. Mandamus is a Latin term. It means to demand or to mandate. And so what we're doing is we're asking a federal court judge to rule and to mandate that, in this case, individual members of the Board of Regents act according to the law. So there is a clear legal duty that's owed to us, my plaintiffs, and they're not performing it. In this case, the clear legal duty 
was, according to their own policy, to give in-state tuition. And and the argument was they're not doing that because they're misinterpreting the words lawful presence. So we filed our lawsuit in April. And in the summer, uh, we had a uh, very nice status conference meeting with the judge. Uh, We had some discovery where we asked, David, for every document of the Board of Regents from 2010 to the present that dealt with their discussion or any internal discussion or any advice they received on what unlawful presence. Now, here's what's interesting, David. In our discovery, there was nothing that said, uh, let's say from the Attorney General, hey, unlawful presence means X. No. There's no minutes of board meetings that say, hey, let's have a talk about unlawful presence. No. Nothing like that. Isn't it odd that the Board of Regents stuck by a, quote, definition of words that had such massive impact on kids for four years, barred them from getting an education. I mean, I have kids, I think, ultimately, that will never get a college degree because of this, because they intentionally misrepresented and misinterpreted this rule. Um, And there's nothing that would justify them interpreting this way. The only thing that it can account for them doing this is politics. Because we know back in 2010, the state legislature wanted to get involved. And at various times over the last several years, several politicians have said, oh, we're going to make sure that undocumented kids can never get in-state tuition, shouldn't even go to college in Georgia. You know, I don't think I'm – not, I'm not deterred by, by politicians saying stuff like that because it's not the majority's I will. And it's certainly not the idea that we're going to continue that way. Let's take our first break here on the immigration. We're going to come back and now talk – about the next phase in the Rivera versus Alford case. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200, or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. So, David, we, we asked the state court judge to rule that the under mandamus, the mandate and compel the Board of Regents to uh, uh, to act according to its own policy. All we were asking for is that the Board of Regents follow its policy. 
wasn't that hard. It's not like we're asking for rocket science to be made. It's just not a difficult thing to do. Uh, and so the judge gave us deadlines in which to file our respective dispositive motions. There's no, there's no disputed facts, although the government said there was disputed facts. There are no disputed facts in this case. I mean, the facts are the facts. The Board of Regents created a policy. They're not following the policy. I guess that's the fact. Um, and they're not following it because they're intentionally misinterpreting the words lawful presence. The government, on the other hand, filed a motion to dismiss our case, and they filed this motion to dismiss saying, one, we failed to state a claim upon which which can be granted, and two, the mandamus was not an appropriate relief in this case. I mean, here's the reality of it. What the government was basically arguing is you have no relief. You can never challenge a state agency like the regents action. That's what they're saying. That's that's their position. You can never challenge it. I mean, that's, that, that type of legal frustration is what causes revolutions, actually. Causes people to revolt. Uh, trust me, we just re- witnessed that nationally when people were told you can't do this. So the purpose of the mandamus relief is to compel a government official to act when they have failed to perform a clear legal duty. Now, a writ of mandamus, David, can only be issued when two conditions have been met. One, the applicant, my DACA kids, have a clear legal right to the relief requested. And two, there's no other adequate legal remedy available to obtain the relief. Now, in this case, the, re- the individual members of the regents, and I'll just call them the regents, argued that our claims impose no clear legal duty on the regents and that we, have, that we quote, failed to plead a demand on their part to the regents, that the regents take the action desired by my kids, nor did we plead a refusal on the part of the regents to take the action. It's like we were living in an alternate universe. Wait a second. My kids have been, I think, to virtually every board of regents meeting for the last six years, asking them to take the appropriate action. And they have been refused. Able, I, I was just honestly flabbergasted by the legal argument. I just flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. Uh, I can't think of a better word than that. Um, now, but the, what the, the court made clear was we pled, one, that the federal government has, has made clear that DACA recipients are lawfully present. Two, the Board of Regents has a policy which requires lawful presence to receive its tuition. And three, that the Board of Regents refuses to accept current lawful presence that the plaintiffs have been granted. So, Judge made it clear, under the facts asserted in our complaint, the defendants f- clearly failed to perform a clear legal duty. So she basically just blew them out. Of the- well, of course you have a clear legal duty. And clearly they argued it. Um, and she said this, and I thought this was the best part of this part of the, her, her decision. The defendants also argued that our claim failed to uh, they, they improperly compel a general course of conduct or performance of continuous duties where the court, court issuing the writ would have to undertake to oversee and control the general course of official conduct. Here's what the court said. That is another mischaracterization of the plaintiff's claim. So the government filed a motion to dismiss. We filed motions for summary judgment. We had oral argument on December 1. At oral argument, the judge said, "What? when do you need a decision by? I said, well, judge, we would like a decision before the end of the year because school starts in early January. She said, you will have a decision 
by the end of the year. Now, David, I, I was actually very grateful we didn't get a decision Christmas week because <laughs> nobody was working. But as, as, as New Year's week rolled on, I was getting a little more nervous. And as Thursday came and went, you know, Friday was basically a holiday. The 30th, the 30th was basically a holiday. But everybody was working the 30th. Uh, you know, I'm thinking we didn't get a decision on the 30th. And I went to bed on the 30th, not knowing what happened. Turns out the judge issued a decision at 11.52 on December 30th. Well, because she got it by the end of the year. <laughs> she got it by the end of the year. Um, and in, and I'll get to this in a second about the effectiveness of this. But this is a decision she wrote. Now, you can, if you, need a, if you want to get a copy of this, you can pull it off uh, my blog at musingsonimmigration.blogspot.com. Uh, there's a bunch of blogs about this. But I love that she said that this is another mischaracterization of plaintiff's claim. Uh, requiring defendants to give proper effect to their own in-state policy as it relates to federally defined legal presence of DACA would not improperly compel any long series of continuous acts to be formed under varying conditions, nor would it improperly compel the undoing of acts already done or the correction of wrongs already perpetrated. Plaintiffs has not sought to have every denial of in-state protection undone. They seek to simply have defendants perform their duty by applying the policy as written from this point forward. Wow. Honestly, I didn't say it any better in my oral argument. The judge said it clearly, concisely, and absolutely 100% correctly. Now, um, she also noted in here that the defendants also argue that any duty that might be owed is discretionary in nature, and therefore our claims for mandamus must fail. There's nothing discretionary about in-state tuition. You either qualify for it, or you don't qualify for it. It's, 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 it's not a Rorschach test where you say, well, I think you do. I really can't tell, though, because it could be a bird. Either do or don't. Uh, the court, she said, agrees with the plaintiff's argument that the regent's enforcement of what is clear and unambiguous standard in their own regulation does not involve any discretion. The lawful present standard is one that was adopted by the Board of Regents in their discretion. But the question of whether to honor the legal definition is not a discretionary matter. And she said, finally, the defendants in their motion to dismiss argue that the plaintiffs have an adequate remedy at law through the appeal process, the fictitious appeal process set out in the regent's manner and that we didn't pursue it. Um, but what the court said is that the defendants failed to establish that the facts in the complaint disclosed with certainty that the appeals process provided for the regents is an equally convenient, complete, or beneficial remedy. Because it's not. It's not only a matter of the Regents Office legal affairs discretion whether each appeal is considered, but the defendants have not provided any showing that each individual student pursuing such appeal would be equally convenient to seeking relief as they have done here. So the court denied the, uh, the Regents' motion to dismiss. Then she got to our motion for summary judgment, which is important because if she grants the motion to dismiss, there is no motion for summary judgment. The case is over and going on appeal. So she gets to the motion for summary judgment. Um, and as she restated what we were talking about, uh, a motion for summary judgment, David, is only appropriate when there is no uh, material facts in dispute. Okay, you know, you say black, I say white. You know, it's like in accident cases, generally there's no motion for summary judgment because you have different opinions about what's going on. The facts are different. Perception is reality. Here, there were no facts in dispute. The government never raised a single fact uh, in dispute here about what was going on. Um, 
And so the first thing we had to satisfy is no, 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 no facts. Now, here is the way the court ruled it. Under the discretion granted to do it, the Board of Regents continues to enact a policy which warrants consideration of in-state classification. To create such a standard and then ignore the federal definition of it, which is the only legally proper definition, is wholly unreasonable. That's the judge's decision, not my argument. Because it, it's just, of course it is. And, it, you know, every citizen should be applauding this decision, regardless of whether they agree with in-state tuition for these kids or not. Because we are holding the government accountable for the words they use. Words have meaning. We have to hold the government accountable for the words they use. Can this be used in other cases outside of what you're talking about? Well, this decision, no, it's not a precedent decision. But if, it went to, if there's an appeal and they decide it, yes. Because words do have meaning. But I think the general policy, the general fight... If you are offended by a state policy and you see um, that whatever the agency is, whether it be the, the wetlands people or whether it be the transportation department, and there is a law and they are not following that law, you have every legal right in the world to bring suit against that. I mean, you should, right? I mean, if the government doesn't follow the law, I mean, Dave, we, we've railed on Obama for the last eight years, right? Uh, arguing he didn't follow the law. Um uh, well, good for you. That's You have a right to bring that action. And if you win, great. You won. I think citizens of every of every type should be excited we won this case. But because what it means is there is still justice. There is still justice out there. So the next thing the judge said, um, uh, it, this was actually it's kind of ironic. Some of the discovery we got, David, was actually pretty good. Because, as the judge says, as the plaintiffs noted, the Board of Regents has even recognized the fact that lawful presence is, of course, a question of federal law. <laughs> because they wrote that in one of their opinions, in one of their issues out there, from their legal staff. Okay, So their lawyers say, hey, it's a question of federal law. Exactly. And federal law says these kids have lawful presence. So I, I thought this was policy. So while an official DHS policy, which would certainly be beneficial given the unique status of DACA recipients, the statements are nonetheless posted to the public on the official website of the DHS, and the court finds they should therefore be taken as accurate representations of the federal government's position. Defendants have refused to accept the federally established lawful presence of plaintiffs and many other similarly situated students, students who are Georgia taxpayers, workers, and graduates of Georgia public high schools pursuing an affordable option for higher education. Such refusal of a faithful performance of their duties is unreasonable and creates a defect of legal justice that has already negatively impacted thousands of Georgia students. There is no genuine issue of material fact as whether plaintiffs have a clear legal right to have defendants compelled to perform their duty on this issue. Uh, the court then got to the second prong, whether there's another remedy available. Uh, the second prong to satisfy must be that mandamus, there must be no other legal remedy available. Uh, the defendants argued that we didn't go through this mystical appeals process. Um, now, here's, here's what this appeals process is, David, and I think this is fascinating. Final judgment on all appeals regarding admissions, residency, students' grades, and the guaranteed tuition plan rests with the president of the institution at which the appeal is heard. Any university system student aggrieved by a final decision of the president of an institution uh, 
may apply may apply to the Board of Legal Affairs for a review of that decision. However, that however provided however that an application be reviewed, there must be a miscarriage of justice might reasonably occur, or the record suggests the institutional decision uh, would be detrimental and have system wide significance. So basically, there's this, this sort of mystical discretionary appeal to the Legal Affairs Office, which is already ruled. In their opinion, the kids don't have in-state tuition. Uh, so here's what the judge said. Quote, it is also undisputed that plaintiffs did not apply to have their in-state tuition denials reviewed through this process. However, this would only bar mandamus relief if the appeals process as set out was equally convenient, complete, and beneficial. The facts and evidence presented show that the appeal process would not provide such adequate alternative relief to the plaintiff. Based on the language of the rule, a student does not have a direct or automatic right to appeal and have the decision reviewed. If a student wishes to appeal the final in-state tuition decision from their institution, they can apply to the Office of Legal Affairs, who will then determine whether the appeal will be considered at all based upon a variety of factors. This multi-step discretionary appeal process is not equally convenient or complete to relief plaintiffs seek here. And better yet, quote, the defendants have not pointed to any specific evidence giving rise to a triable issue on this question, and a court finds there is no genuine issue of material fact as to whether there's an alternative remedy. And now, my favorite paragraph of this order, uh, which says this, for the aforementioned reasons, plaintiffs have established that they are entitled to mandamus relief as a matter of law. Plaintiff's motion for a summary judgment is granted, and defendants are hereby compelled to perform their duty in applying the federal definition of lawful presence as it relates to students who are DACA recipients and to grant them in-state tuition status. This is the court's final order, and the case is marked as closed, December 30, 2016. Let's come back and talk about this some more. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano, o tiene problemas con inmigración, o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national. Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. So, David, we were talking a bit off air, and you ask a great question. Uh, well, you know, shouldn't shouldn't the schools be applauding this? Especially, and, that's, and the question is important because we've talked about on previous shows uh, that there is a lack of students at Georgia universities and colleges. So much so that at seven or ten of those schools, they give out of state, in state tuition to residents of Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, and Florida to go to those schools because they don't have enough students going. Somebody said, you know, well, you're just taking, you're just taking uh, uh, spaces away from Georgia citizens. No, 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 because remember, these kids can't go to two co- the only three colleges that reject people. I mean, there's like, I think, 31 or 32 Georgia colleges and universities, David. Only three actually reject applicants. Only three. So, no, these kids aren't taking spots from anybody. In fact, they're helping fill up the schools, the spots, so they don't have to lay off teachers. Um, and what I find interesting about this is that once people really, oh, really? I didn't know that. They've got to be taking, no, they're not taking spots. They also don't cost the state any money. Presumably, in-state tuition plus whatever taxes you pay cover your, cover your money, right? I mean, presumably there'd be no out-of-state kids, right? Presumably there's no out-of-state kids at all, and therefore they would make ends meet with what they have. So nobody's, I mean, the state's not losing any money. Now, are they losing money because the kids would be paying less tuition? Sure, but it's not costing the state any more money. There's no addition. They don't have to hire more teachers because of this ruling because the kids, many of them are already in school. Or they can actually, many of them actually save teachers' jobs if they're going to schools that are, that are faulting, to, faulting students uh, or lacking students. So I think your point is a good point. Shouldn't the university be applauding this? And I will tell you, David, people that work at these schools, for the most part, because I've got emails from kids I'll tell you about in a second, ecstatic. The emails I got privately, they were ecstatic by this decision because they see the wrong nature of this Board of Regents policy. When does when do we uh, put up the bronze bust of you? And no, there's no bronze bust. I didn't do this for a bronze bust. <laughs> I did this because the kids asked me to, and it was the right thing to do. It's the uh, right thing to do. You should be applauded, and you should not only be applauded but awarded. And, and uh, I think this is, in my opinion, historical, and uh, you, you, you should – well, let's talk about what this means. Thank you, David. Let's talk about what this means. So <clears throat> I am not an expert on Georgia appellate law. I don't really practice Georgia law. I'm an immigration law. I practice federal immigration law. So I'm not in state court hardly ever. Uh, so I'm no expert on this. Uh, so we received the decision from the judge on Monday, January 3rd. That's when it was posted to the website. Um, we didn't get it on December 30th. But under Georgia law, a judgment, uh, a, 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 a order from a court is effective, in my opinion, when it's issued, right? Uh, there is a Georgia statute that says whenever a court issues a judgment in a case. Now, this is different. This is an order on a motion for summary judgment, not necessarily a judgment on a case. And there's certainly no monetary damages here. We didn't get any money from this at all. Uh, I didn't even get my lawyer's fee. I didn't ask, I didn't ask him for my lawyer's fees from anybody for this case. So... My position is that that order was effective immediately. And I have talked to appellate experts, in fact, to the firm that wrote the book on appellate law. 
And their position is it's effective immediately because it's an order on a motion for summary judgment, and it's a mandamus order, not a judgment on a civil action like a, like a lawsuit for damages or contractual stuff. Now, if it was a judgment under state law, it would not be effective for 10 days. There's a 10-day window in which it becomes effective. So that, David, that 10-day window ran yesterday. Now, I assume the Board of Regents, now kids started going in on, on Tuesday, uh, Monday afternoon, Tuesday, asking, or Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, and asking for in-state tuition. And they began getting rejected. Oh, no, we're going to appeal the case. So while on appeal, we don't have to give you in-state tuition. Now, David, unfortunately, that was a lie. That actually is legally a lie. Maybe it was a mistake, but to these kids, it's a lie. Um, because there is no automatic stay of this case. Now, arguably, from the state's perspective, there is a 10-day window, which runs out today. All right. So as of January 10th, they're supposed to take in-state tuition. Unless they apply for and receive what's called a supersedious. You ever heard that word before? I hadn't spent a lot of time on a supersedious either before either. A better word for that is a stay. You know, to put the hold, to put the decision in abeyance, to hold the effectiveness of the order in abeyance. There's no automatic abeyance of this order. It's effective. Whether it's effective on December 30th or it's effective on January 10th, it's effective as we sit here today on January 10th. And the government's going to argue, well, it wasn't uh, entered by the clerk until uh, December, until January 3rd. So, it, you know, it's four more days we have. I don't buy that. It's issued by the 30th. The judge signed it on the 30th. I think it's effective as of the 30th. That's something we'll talk about in a second. So we have asked kids to go in today again and say, I want to pay in-state tuition. What the government did on Friday afternoon in the midst of our you know, nightmarish incoming weather here in Georgia when everybody was being sent home, uh, the Board of Regents filed an, an, an application for writ, well, it should be called a writ of supersedious, but an application for supersedious with the Fulton County Superior Court judge, Judge Toussaint, the presiding judge, the judge over this case. And uh, that was fun. They emailed me a copy at 11 a.m. Never said a word to me they were filing this. Um, and, but I've been emailing them, the lawyers, say, hey, these kids, they're getting rejected. What are you, what are you telling your clients? Uh, your clients telling these kids there's an automatic stay. There's no automatic stay. You got to accept the tuition. Well, you got ten days. We had an argument after ten days. I said whatever. They got to accept the tuition certainly by January tenth. So they filed on Friday afternoon. So Friday at eleven a.m. I, of course, you know, I want to go home too, right? We're about to have be inundated with a massive storm. I spent the next four hours and I wrote a response. I wrote an opposition to the application for for writ of supersedious, and I filed it electronically with the court. And I called the court at two o'clock, saying I'm filing this. And they were closed. The courts closed at noon. <laughs> they all went home. I'm not even sure the courts saw the government's filing in the morning at 11 o'clock. So uh, by Friday at 3 o'clock, the government has filed for a writ of supersedes, a writ of first stay, and hold the case in abeyance. I have filed our opposition. Monday comes. Yesterday is the last day. It's January 9th. No ruling. You get email from the court, uh, court clerk last night. We'll let you know when we rule on the case. So as a result, yesterday around 3 o'clock, I got another email from the Board of Regents lawyers saying, hey, we are filing an application for an emergency uh, supersedious with the Court of Appeals. And 
On Friday, it turns out they'd also filed an application for a, an, a discretionary appeal. There's no automatic appeal in this case. So they have to get the Court of Appeals to accept the appeal. So they apply, they filed a 23-page application for discretionary appeal with the Court of Appeals on Friday the 6th, which I got yesterday in the afternoon. Um, I have 10 days to respond. Of course, I'm going to respond to that. Uh, I don't think an appeal is necessary in this case. But even if it is, whatever, it doesn't stay the case. So they filed a request for an emergency stay in this case, an emergency writ of supersedious. Four o'clock. I got that. Now, I'm, I have clients. I'm working, right? So what do I got to do, David? Now, that now the, the Fulton County judge hasn't ruled on the first supersedious. Now there's a second supersedious pending at the federal at the at the at the, at the appellate court. So I've got to respond. So I was at the last night at nine fifteen. I finished my opposition to their writ of supersedious with their emergency motion. Now there are special rules that apply to emergency motions. Um, and all the while, kids are calling me. They're emailing me. Hey, they're not letting me be in situation. What's going on? And as I explain to, to, to people, look, this is to the Board of Regents, what's this about? Politics. Well, we've got to take in state tuition. To these kids, it's their life. Tuition was due last week for most of the schools in Georgia. And these kids are being forced to come up nine, ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars, which many of them don't have, so they're having to take one course instead of the five courses they need to graduate. Or they're having to borrow money at crazy, because they don't get student loans, they don't get grants, they don't get scholarships, they're not eligible for any of that stuff. None of it. It's all out of pocket. So they might be borrowing money from, from people on, you know, paying 20% interest on stuff just so they can finish their college education. Yet if they could have paid in-state tuition when it was due, they'd be paying two or three or $4,000 and finishing their education. One kid emailed me that this is my last semester and I was so excited to pay in-state tuition so I could finish this semester because I could take all these classes and now I can't because I can't afford $12,000. I've only got 4000 I was hoping to pay in-state tuition. I could take all my classes in one semester and be done. And now I can't. What do I do? This breaks my heart, David. I mean, this is just morally wrong. For the board of regents at this point to, to 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 not be accepting in-state tuition, I mean, I understand they want they want to exercise every, as I did. We want to use every legal right we possibly can. We we I don't begrudge them their legal rights. They have every right to do this, but the time has now run, and now we're playing games with people's lives, um, uh, and, and the, these games are actually hurting these kids. Um, uh, and as as they hurt these kids, it's I mean it, it's it has long term effects, long term effects that are that are just um, I mean deleterious to these kids mentally, socially, physically. Uh, and I am I, I was as I was writing my opposition last night, David. I was just getting angrier and angrier at this, angrier. And angrier at this, so I, I I responded last night, and my opposition to the and the way it works is now we're the respondents and they're the applicants instead of us being the plaintiffs and then the defendants uh, in in the mandamus action, and uh, they um, 
and what was interesting is in their application for writ of supersedia, emergency emergency motion, they included their appeal, which I had never seen until they filed this. You say, how am I going to respond to it? To what was a hundred and thirty page appeal, twenty three pages written plus exhibits. How am I going to respond to that emergency? I got to do it now. Let's talk about this in a few minutes when we come back on our last segment of the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're going to come back here as our last segment of the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. So, David, I am writing this last night. And, by the way, it's freezing in my office because, as you know, in every office building in America, at 6 o'clock, the, 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 the heat and the air conditioning go off, right? That's just true here, too. It's true everywhere because the landlords aren't going to pay for it. And it was butt cold last night. And so I'm in my office, and I'm typing, and my computer turns off. Just bam. Computer monitor everything. Why? In the same outlet, I have a heater plugged in. So, I fortunately didn't have to start from the beginning, so I, I got back up and going, and I was just getting, you know, angrier. I'm thinking, you know, you have an application pending. Why aren't you waiting for the judge to rule on that? Why do you got to waste my time and my kids' time doing this? Now, in order to get an emergency motion granted, here is the rule, all right? They have to show, one, um that one, for an emergency motion seeking a supersedia, this is under Rule 40B of the Georgia Court of Appeals rules, would only be granted, quote, to preserve jurisdiction of an appeal. Well, that's, that's not an issue here. Okay, so we're not, there's no jurisdiction of an appeal here. Or to prevent a contested issue from becoming moot. Well, it's not becoming moot. I mean, if they could still take the appeal, then at that point, the kids, in a, if we lose, they wouldn't get any tuition, so we become moot. So, I, under no basis, in my opinion, can it, can an emergency motion be granted? It, does, it doesn't meet the legal criteria for it. I think it's an abuse to file this emergency motion, and even worse. Okay, the motion itself shall. This is what this says: shall. So, it's not you may do this. Shall one contain an explanation why an order of this court is necessary? And why the action requested is time-sensitive. That they did. Two, 
contain a stamped file copy of the order being appealed. Okay. Well, isn't the appeal of the judge's denial of the supersedious, which hasn't been issued yet? Now, the government's going to argue what's being appealed is her final order. No, 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 no. What's being appealed should be is her supersedious. So I don't even think they legally comply with the grounds of the rule for Now, I could be wrong. I could be reading this incorrectly, which is fine. But they still don't meet the criteria of the actual motion. Now, they made three arguments in their motion. One, the Superior Court did not follow the law and committed reversible error. Here's what I wrote, David, in response to that. The applicants allege in their brief that the Superior Court committed reversible error. Of course they allege this. They lost. <laughs> That's what I wrote. Of course they did. That allegation, in and of itself, is not a ground for granting a motion for supersedious. I lost. Yeah, okay. That's not an emergency motion. We're not arguing the merits of their discretionary appeal application, nor the appeal itself. That's all they argued is, hey, judge made all these errors. No, no, that's, you know, that's not the appeal. The appeal is, is there going to be something rendered moot, or are you going to lose your appeal? No. Okay. And when I wrote, and literally my response was a paragraph. There is literally nothing in this section of the applicant's brief that goes to the two specific reasons why the motion should be granted. To preserve jurisdiction appeal or to prevent a condition from becoming moot. They, they literally never addressed it. The next section of their brief was this. They argued uh, that the supersedious is, pos- is proper because irreparable harm would come to the Board of Regents. Hmm? What irreparable harm would come to the Board of Regents? I mean, David, you say something all the time that is so true about governments doing stuff. Follow the money. All right? Follow the money. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Here's what I wrote in response. The supersedious, or the stay, is improper because it causes irreparable harm to the applicants while not harming uh, the respondents, while not harming the, the applicants at all. I get, the, I get to fix that in the brief. Okay. The final order in this case does, in fact, apply to all DACA recipients enrolled in Georgia. This is not a large number, likely fewer than a few hundred at this time. By granting the supersedious, every one of these students would be forced to either pay full out-of-state tuition, triple or more the cost of in-state tuition, placing an undue financial burden on those least likely to afford it, or these students would have to reduce their course load to pay only for a class or two, thus delaying their graduation and completion of studies. In either case, the students, including their respondents, would be substantially and irreparably harmed. The applicants give only one reason, one reason, why your supersedious should be granted. Quote, the state should not forgo the out-of-state tuition amounts that the regents have determined that DACA recipients owe. Incorrectly and possibly illegally determined, according to the state court judge. But the applicants do not say, what they do not say, that the final should be reversed on appeal. They can, what they don't say is this. Should the final order be reversed on appeal, David, they can obtain that money back from the respondents, from my people and other students, simply by putting a hold on the release of their degree or the transcript until the fees are paid. How many kids do you know couldn't get the transcript if they owed money to the school? That's all they got to do. They're not going to lose any money on this. 
There is no possible monetary loss to the applicants, and there is no reason to grant the supersedes. And finally, David, uh, they argue that the court's final order required an impermissible course of conduct. So here's what I wrote. The applicants disingenuously argue that the final order imposes some sort of, quote, impermissible course of conduct, close quote, on them. In no way does the final order limit the ability of the applicants to grant or not grant in-station tuition, in-state tuition to anyone. It simply says that if the Board of Regents is going to use legal terms to define who can receive in-state tuition, it must actually live by the legal meaning of those terms. The applicants cannot make up the meaning of the words it uses. Applicants cannot plainly reject the meaning of words. Finally, the final order does not compel a course of conduct. It compels applicants to use the legal meaning of words it uses in formal policy. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing in the final order bars the applicants from changing the words used in granting its intuition, nor in changing its policy. There is no compelling of action going forward here. Frankly, as I wrote this, again, I was, it was, I was loopy last night. Frankly, respondents, my clients, the documents, wish they could compel the Board of Regents, but they cannot. Hence the nature of the mandamus. And David, I filed this last night asking the, the court to deny this. Uh, as of this morning, I don't have any decision from the court about what's going to go on with this. I don't know what's going to go on with this. I've, I posted a little blog last night, asked my kids to come out and let me know if they, if they go apply for tuition today, what, what's being told to them, what's, what, whether they're being denied or not. Uh, I'm going to call legal counsel for the government today, and if something comes to me and says they're not taking in-state tuition, uh, and I am going to file a contempt action in state court tomorrow if they're not obeying this ruling, uh, absent a, a supersedious being granted. Uh, because it's not right. When you ask kids to live by the law, you should live by the law as well. When you file the contempt, will that be against all universities in it, It'll in be against the individual members of the Board of Regents, which by default applies to every university college, not technical schools. The technical system is different from this. Unfortunately, we did not school the technical schools. Their policy is a little bit different. We'll look at that next. Uh, I didn't have any plaintiffs from the technical schools. Um, but uh, if, uh, if they use the same wording, then we're going to go after them as well. But, yeah, it'll apply to every college, university in Georgia. That's, that's a Georgia, not, not the private schools, of course, but the, the public schools. Now, David, you know, the bigger concern, of course, is what happens to these kids on Inauguration Day. You know, this may be a victory for 10 days until the 20th. And maybe these kids get one semester of tuition, and that's it. Uh, and uh, that would be sad if Trump takes away DACA from these kids uh, and thus takes away their, their lawful presence. Uh, or the new head of Homeland Security changes the definition of lawful presence. All those things would be traumatic and, and problematic and, and, and honestly, uh, a, a, a blow to the psyche of kids everywhere. Uh, you know, I've said repeatedly, nothing's worse than a child without hope. Uh, you know, when you tell kids growing up, you need to get an education so you don't got to pluck chickens, so you don't got to work in the fields, so you don't work as hard as I do. Then you say, oh, sorry, you can't get that. Or we're going to charge you so much money, you literally cannot afford it. Because, again, these kids can't get loans. You know, they can't get scholarships from the state. Uh, they can't get Pell Grants. They're not entitled to anything other than the money they make. So most of them work full-time jobs and then go to school part-time, 
one or two classes at a time. David, if you got to take 40 classes to graduate uh, and you take one class a semester, that's a 10-year course of study. Not exactly conducive to a good society. And really, if you've got kids smart enough to go to our colleges and universities, what are we depriving them of them for? It, it, it really makes no sense. So, I mean, I remain concerned about what the new president will do for these kids uh, because I, it, it could destroy lives. It really could destroy lives. And I, I would just tell the kids that are listening to this, you have friends. You have people that are putting everything on the line to help you. Trust them. But you yourself have to become active. You yourself, you cannot let your fellow DACA students do all the work. We need every DACA student to come out to say, I am willing to be counted. I am willing to put myself on the forefront. I am willing to demand what I am legally entitled to. Not demanding benefits from a state just because I'm undocumented. When the government says I'm entitled to it, I should get it. And it's that simple, David. You know, if there's justice for one, there should be justice for all. Uh, and, and as my Savior said, when we do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. We have a moral obligation to a lot of these kids. Uh, and we're not going to deport them. We're not going to send them abroad. Uh, we're not going to kick some of the best and brightest talent out of our country. We need to use what we can now at this very moment and do what we can now at this very moment to get immigration fixed and to go from there. Uh, David, it's been a good show this week. It's been a really good show this week. Um, and um, uh, David, I want to read this email from this kid just now. This is from a, a student. I'm currently enrolled in Georgia Winnet College. My first day of class is scheduled for today, but I have been in between dropping all courses or not. For now, I just only have two classes left. I have DACA, and I'm being charged out of state. My tuition with four classes was originally $7,000. But since I dropped two classes, it's now 3345 In this case, there hasn't been any more updates on whether or not we would be up in state tuition. What can I do? What do you tell a kid like that? What do you tell a kid like that? I know what I'm going to tell her. Lisette, we're here for you. If they do not take in state tuition today, you will meet me tomorrow in state court, and we're going to ask for them to be held in contempt. We'll sign off till next week to see Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. To follow more details on this case, follow me at musings on immigration at .blogspot.com or my website, immigration.net. Or reach out to me at chuck at immigration.net. Until next week, this is Chuck Cook on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.